Hi, you guys. It's Liz Ryan, and this is episode two of our podcast, The Truth About Work. Thank you so much for your emails and messages and texts about the first episode last week. And uh, we've got a lot more questions to answer and stuff to talk about regarding work and careers and how to get a job and how to deal with your crazy boss and everything that people deal with at work or thinking about their work. I'm Liz Ryan, of course. I'm CEO of a company called Human Workplace and the Human Workplace Movement. Our goal, our mission is to reinvent work for people and not a moment too soon, right? So we got a question right now to answer from Jay. This came to us by email. And if you have a question for me, please send it to support at humanworkplace.com. And I might answer it on a future podcast or on Twitter, LinkedIn, here and there. Here we go. Jay says, hi, Liz. I'm on my stealth job search now and talking with lots of recruiters. I'm looking back at my experiences, and it seems the ones that actually can get me an interview already have a pre-existing relationship with someone specific at the employer. I'm thinking I should pre-qualify recruiters with the question, who do you know at this employer or in this department? And if they don't know anybody, simply refuse to work with them. Does that sound like I'm on the right track? Hey, Jay, you know what? You're thinking about it, and that's the most important thing. Let's do a little uh, sermonette right now about recruiters. Recruiters, sometimes called search consultants or placement consultants or headhunters, they have a lot of different names. These are folks who work either for themselves or for firms, recruiting agencies, getting uh, uh, candidates to fill jobs for their clients. So you notice I didn't say they work for these agencies getting people jobs. They do, of course, get people jobs. They have to, to get paid, but their focus is filling a job for a client. Client meaning an employer, right? Small employer, big employer, anybody that calls up the recruiting agency and is willing to pay their fee, which is going to be about 25% of the new hire's cash compensation for the first year. So if the person's being hired, let's say, for a $60,000 job, the recruiter's going to get a fee of about fifteen grand to fill that position, right? And their focus is on what does the client want. So I have to say in support of my recruiting brothers and sisters right now that when you go to a recruiter, it's not like, let me see if I can find you a job. That would be cool. But really, they get paid by employers to fill jobs for them. And I couldn't agree with you more, Jay. The folks who are the most likely to be able to get you an interview are the people who already have pre-existing relationships with these clients. Because unfortunately, it's extremely easy to become a recruiter. If you wanted to become a recruiter, you could do that right now by turning to your dog or your cat or the fireplace and saying, I'm a recruiter now. That's all that it requires to become a recruiter. A professional recruiter, not necessarily at a professional level, but you can do it. There's no test. There's no certification, none of that stuff. So anybody can hold themselves out as a recruiter and folks do, you know, they do it and they'll call you and they'll say, I want your resume because they want to show some impressive resumes to a future client, a prospective client as a way of getting them on their client list. They say, look at these great people that I represent, right? It's like a talent agent. The better quality of resumes they can show, the more likely they are to get an assignment and uh, have the privilege of submitting resumes for a job. And if one of their folks gets hired, you know, they get that 25% check. So yes, 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 Jay, be discriminating, be judicious, be choosy when it comes to working with recruiters. 
absolutely positively ask them, who do you know in the company? But more specifically, what jobs have you filled for this company? If a recruiter contacts you and they say, I filled four jobs for this very hiring manager, this very department manager in the last 18 months, that's the guy to work with, male or female. They already have the relationship. They already have the in. That's a good question, Jay. Thanks for asking. If you also, if you have a question for me that you want to leave on voicemail, please do. The number is 720-316-9603. All right, let's move on. We have a voicemail question I'm going to answer next. Hi, Liz. Uh, Love what you're doing. Love all your advice. Uh, I have a question for you. Um, I've been working for this company about five years. I like it. I get along well with everybody, with my bosses, with my peers. Um, I've been offered a supervisory role at this company, and I'm a little bit hesitant to take it because I think that once I do take it, some of the people I'm working with now are going to be looking at me a little bit differently and not necessarily in a positive way. Um, I think that they could, you know, some of these people could give me grief because... They say, oh, you don't want to be part of us anymore? Who do you think you are? That kind of thing. Um, and so I'm kind of conflicted um, whether I should take this position. And on one hand, I do want to take it because it would be more responsibility, uh, more money, a step up, if you will. Uh, but there's part of me that says, I think I'm going to get some grief from the people that uh, I now work with. And I'm just wondering, what's your advice on something like this? Oh, okay, what a great question. Thank you for that. Yes, yeah, so you've been invited to apply or maybe even offered, formally offered a supervisory job, which is cool, but you're worried about what's going to happen to your relationships with your coworkers and who hasn't, right? This is a gut check, okay? Here's how it works. If you fear that legitimately stepping into a job, supervising folks who are currently your peers and your buddies is going to be uh, such a challenge that you know you won't enjoy the supervisory job, you won't get anything out of it, you won't be successful at it. In other words, if it won't be worth the pain, if it won't be worth the pain, then you know maybe you don't want to do it. But then in that case, here's what I would say. If that's the culture, that a person who's promoted from the ranks to become the supervisor or team leader, whatever, of the folks that they currently or, or previously worked alongside, and it's that's just insurmountable and you'll never get a break and it'll just be pure pain and they'll never respect you and they'll never accept you in that job, then you really have to look at whether you're in the right organization because that's not normal. Normally what happens is one of the team gets promoted. Uh, If people generally like their jobs, if they generally trust the managers, feel that the managers are making good decisions, if they like you, seems like they like you now as a coworker, right? then there might be a couple of weeks of dislocation. Of course it's weird when your friend, your buddy becomes your supervisor. Of course it's weird, but normally we work through that. Happened to me um, when I was a little customer service person way back in the day. It happens to so many people, and normally it's just a thing. It's not, um, you know, such an insurmountable obstacle that it would be worth not taking the job. Think about it like this. These guys are great, but if they are truly your friends, wouldn't they be happy to see you take a step up and succeed, you know, in your career and maybe grow some new muscles as a supervisor? If you're afraid of their reactions to the point where you decline a a job opportunity that could be good for you, then you got to really, really investigate whether that friendship is still serving you. 
Okay. You know what? I wanted to talk about something today in episode two, that uh, a little discussion on Twitter, maybe LinkedIn too, but I remember the Twitter conversation. Uh, it was about HR practices, one of my favorite topics, human resources and the practice and philosophy of human resources. Uh, and it was HR practices to abolish my list, a quick list. These are just some of the worst offenders in terms of HR practices. There are so many more, but these are some of the worst ones that sprang to mind for me. And then I put into a tweet, which of course is limited to 280 characters. So it couldn't be infinitely long and, um, got a ton of mail. Why do you dislike this practice, Liz? Or why did that practice make your list? Or what's so bad about X, Y, or Z? So I thought, you know what? In our next podcast episode, which we're recording right now, I'm going to address each one of these HR practices just briefly and just do a little little soliloquy <laughs> about why it's destructive and why I hate it. And I want to remind you that I am an HR person. Um, I was a Fortune 500 HR leader and startup, and I've written and spoken about HR for thousands of years. And, and these things that I'm about to describe are destructive. Okay. It's not just like, I don't like it. I, I would prefer not to do it. It's definitely true, but I'm going to tell you why I think they're destructive to your organization and the people who work there and the fabric of the culture that, that I believe is the key of everything you're trying to do in your in your business or your not-for-profit or your government agency. These are bad practices that, that suck away the juice, you know, the human warmth and, and camaraderie and trust that, that make organizations go and thrive. All right, let's start. So here are eight HR practices to ditch by me, Liz Ryan. All right, exit interviews. Hate exit interviews. Exit interviews are the most cynical practice you could imagine. I worked for the company I found it so off-putting, so difficult, so hard that I had to leave. I had to launch a stealth job search, an under-the-radar job search, because here in the United States, we have something called employment at will. That should be the top of the list. It's not even on the list. It's such an underpinning. Employment at will is a legal doctrine that says they don't need a reason to fire you. Now, this is, uh, you know, a horrible thing. It's bad for companies. It's bad for shareholders, obviously bad for employees, Somebody doesn't like your face, you could be fired for that reason alone. And it keeps people on tenter hooks. It keeps them in fear. And it has a lot to do with the culture of fear that I rant and rail about all the time. Because obviously, if you go to bed at night not knowing whether you're going to have a job the next day, it's hard to sleep very easily. It's hard to live a happy and productive life. It's hard to give your all at work under employment at will. You're not going to suggest ideas that your boss might not like ideas that could really help your company. So not a fan employment at will. And I couldn't be happier to see it being eroded now with new laws. Uh, for example, saying that, uh, you can't be fired from a fast food job for no cause, which is proposed. Yeah. Great. Fast food and everyone else, right? U S only real industrialized country that has employment at will in the EU and elsewhere. Folks have contracts. This is shocking to a lot of American workers, uh, working people because they're, they're not used to the concept that you go to work and you cannot be fired unless you really do something wrong, but that's how it should be my opinion. So employment at will makes uh, a stealth job search, a really risky thing. You could literally be fired if your boss thought or found out that you were job hunting. That's terrible. What does it tell you about fear-based management? 
Just the idea that I would want to go out and check out the countryside, the landscape, talk to some other companies, I could be fired. Oh, hell yeah. And that's why it's double insult that you go through all that trouble, you get another offer, you give notice, and they say, now you can come to HR and tell us what you liked and didn't like. Really? And they make it a specific meeting with HR because the presumption is that it's not safe to talk to your own manager, even on your way out the door. How broken and twisted is that, right? If HR cares, they should talk to you about how you're doing and how you like your job all the time, not just when you give notice. That's such a slap in the face. If you spill the beans about things that that happened that were inopportune, unfortunate, you know, unethical, whatever, unprofessional on the job, it can still come back and hurt you because they're human beings who are recording this information. If there were any chance that anybody could have solved the problems that you experienced and kept you in the company, right, they had their chance to do that and they blew it. So the idea that you're now invited to an exit interview to tell people, you know, what you would have told them if they were listening earlier is just so incredibly low and, and, and Bush league and insulting to you. I hope when you get invited to an exit interview, you say, Oh, thank you so much for the invitation, but I'm absolutely slammed between now and my last day of work. If you have a questionnaire you want me to fill out, send it over. That's what they get for an exit interview, right? It's a bad practice. Here's another one. Detailed dress code policies to the stitch, to the, to the width of the strap on your top or to the length of your, your skirt. You will never keep up. It's not 1950. You hire adults. The, the smaller your dress code policy can be, the better. Come on. Yes, you're going to have to talk to people from time to time about their dress code. And you're going to have to have a human conversation, a sticky conversation. I've done it a million times right? How to talk to people about dress code things. Uh, I'm not sure if that particular um, t-shirt is the one to wear to work and here's why. It's because of the language on it. It says, you know, blank you. And anybody reading that is like, really? So I'm going to give you a logo t-shirt. We have them in the storeroom to wear for the rest of the day. Maybe tomorrow, you know, you wear something else, right? If Once again, the bedrock is trust. If you have trust, you can have conversations like that and it's no big deal. If there's no trust, then you have to refer to a policy and say, it's right here on page 16. Listen, you could write a 14-page dress code policy, and some organizations have 14-page dress code policy. No one reads them. Next, HR, practice to ditch is annual performance reviews. Super not a fan. Yes, of course you have to plan, and you have to set goals, but you do not have to look back and say, here's what you did well, and here's what you did badly. What is the possible business uh, advantage of that. What's the benefit? Performance reviews are just fear and control, and they actually slow down the work. We want people speeding down the track, right? We don't want to slow them down. You get an A, you get a B, you get a C, you get a C minus. Ridiculous. It mimics school. The whole grading process happens in school. It doesn't happen in real life. If you don't like your auto mechanic, you change to a different auto mechanic, but you don't sit there and give them grades along the way. Let's get rid of annual performance reviews. Oh, stack ranking. Some folks, some companies still do this. It's from the Jack Welsh era, the 1980s. Loathsome, loathsome. Uh, stack ranking is where they take all the employees in a department and by extension, the entire company and rate them against one another as though people were like, you know, pieces of lumber 
as though people were acorns that you could grade by size or something. There is no one attribute by which you can evaluate a person. Say they're good, they're bad. If you ever watch any of the old, like, buddy movies, Magnificent Seven or, you know, Ocean's Eleven, any of these buddy movies, the whole concept, the whole theme is that it takes all these different people with different skills to mesh together, different personalities, different backgrounds, same way at work. It's not about individuals, you're good, he's better, the other one is the best. It's, that's so insulting. It's another fear and control mechanism. Got to go. Okay, attendance policies for salaried employees. The whole idea if you're on salary is that you get your salary and you do your job. Really, salaried employees shouldn't have attendance policies any more than they should be told. You have to walk in at 8.30, leave at 5.00 right? And you have to be, you're on salary. You're producing a result. And if you don't trust your employees, then you put them on salary and nonetheless give them an attendance policy. And if you do trust your employees, you say the attendance policy is that if you go on vacation, let us know. But otherwise we assume that you're where you need to be and you're getting your work done. It's 2019, you guys. We got to get out of this 1940s management model. The last HR practice to ditch on our list is getting written up for insubordination. I put out something about this not too long ago on LinkedIn. Got a lot of email about it. People said, no, no, no. You know, people can disagree, but they have to respect the title. Insubordination is still a very appropriate reason to write someone up. There's a way to talk and there's a way to not talk. Listen, my darling, that's your fear. That is literally your fear. If someone is not cursing you or they're not physically assaulting you, you're the manager and your job is to stand there and take it. You know why people care? Because people are wired to care about their jobs. They care about the right answer. The idea that your fragile ego cannot be uh, 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 questioned or challenged, people have to bow down as a condition of working for you, is actually causing harm to your customers and your shareholders. And it's your fragile ego in the way, your fear. Right? That's why I'm always talking about fear versus trust. You build the trust, you build the trust, you build the trust. And you know what happens when you build trust? There's no more discussion of insubordination, like it's 1842, right? In the Royal British Navy. Somebody says, I'm sorry, boss. I think that's a crazy idea. Let me tell you why it's not going to work. It's in your best interest to listen. It's in your best interest. We're all learning. We're growing new muscles. We're getting stronger. And some of the muscles we're growing are muscles about letting go of control and power, right? It's new territory. But here's the thing. It's only new territory for a short period of time, and then it gets easier. And pretty soon you're saying, here's my idea. Tell me why this idea sucks. Please, you guys, tell me why it sucks. I'd rather have you tell me than the bosses upstairs. You know what I'm saying? This is Liz Ryan, and it's the Truth About Work podcast. Great to talk with you guys. See you next time.